0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Mohammed S. Dajani Daoudi about his book, Teaching Empathy and Reconciliation in the Midst of Conflict. Professor Mohamed Dajani Daoudi is the founder of the Wasatia Movement of Moderate Islam. He's a peace activist and a scholar of political science with degrees from the University of Texas and the University of South Carolina. Mohamed Dajani Daoudi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Mohammed, let's jump right in and talk about your important work. To begin with, what is wasatia?
1: Wasatia is a word in Arabic, which means uh, middle ground, linguistically speaking, It means center, middle ground, and religiously speaking, it means temperance, uh, tolerance, balance, uh, justice. So uh, it has uh, both meanings, uh, linguistically and religiously. And we use it to indicate uh, a call for moderation, a call for temperance, a call for tolerance of the other, dialogue, and uh, that's our focus, actually.
0: You uh, write and speak about the time you noticed moderation at work in an encounter between Israeli soldiers and Palestinians back in 2006, and how that led you to the establishment of Wasatia in the following January. Tell us about that important incident.
1: Yeah, it was... um... A Friday morning, and it was uh, Ramadan, the holy month of Ramadan, uh, in which Muslims uh, uh, fast. And two Palestinians in the West Bank, it was very important for them during this holy month to pray at Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, in Jerusalem. So on that morning, hundreds were gathered at an Israeli checkpoint Uh, coming from the West Bank and wanting to cross the checkpoint to go to Jerusalem to pray. And the soldiers were uh, uh, stopping them because they did not carry uh, permits uh, to cross the checkpoint. And uh, the uh, people were pushing against the checkpoint and the soldiers were pushing them back and throwing at them tear gas and trying to st- st- stop them from uh, wanting to cross the checkpoint without a permit. And um, I asked you, I was observing this from my office, which was 100 meters away. And I thought that eventually there will be shooting violence and because of the uh, of the um, fragility of the issue. And um, I uh, observed after a while that things cooled down and then realized that there was a deal between the soldiers and the people. The officer who was in charge made a deal with the people that um, they will cross peacefully. He, He will take their IDs, they will be checked and then the um, uh, Israelis brought buses which took the uh, people who wanted to go to pray to the Al-Aqsa Mosque where they prayed and then the buses brought them back and then they got their IDs and they went home. So observing this, I thought that this is um, uh, an awakening moment, it's uh, illuminating, because uh, here we have a win-win situation where the soldiers uh, were worried about security and uh, violence, and the people were worried about missing the prayer at the Haram Sharif. And so uh, once there was uh, rationality, uh, and goodwill, then the problem was resolved. The people, I thought that the people were not extremists and they did not belong to extremist factions because had they belonged to extremist factions, they would not have accepted to make that deal, to give the, to be a, to be searched, to give their ideas to take the Israeli buses, go to pray and then having the buses bring them back to the check mark. However, that's what happened. So I assumed that these are moderate Muslims, moderate Palestinians, so religious, moderate religiously. And so the question in my mind was, who represents these people? Because What we have in Palestine is what we have around um, 10 Islamic uh, parties and around 40 secular parties. The 10 Islamic parties are all of them uh, against peace, against uh, reconciliation and uh, consider Palestine to be an Islamic Waqf, Waqf meaning Islamic endowment, that should not be negotiated. And so to them, it's either us or them. While here, we have a situation where the people did not think in terms of us or them, but rather in terms of uh, uh, getting together, a coexistence. And uh, so I, I thought, uh, who represents these people and uh, as a result I uh, felt the need to uh, start a movement which I called Wasatiyah and the reason for selecting the term in Arabic and to use the term exactly Wasatiya is that it is a term in the Quran in the second chapter of uh, uh, the Quran it is, um, it is Al-Baqarah Surah. And uh, in verse 143, uh, it says, and thus we have created you a moderate nation. Verse 142 says, God will uh, guide you to the right path. Verse 143 says, and we have created you a temperate nation. Uh, ummatan wasatan. And, uh, and the verse 143 is in the midst of the chapter because the chapter is 286 verses. So verse 143 is exactly in the middle to symbolize the significance of the meaning. And so that's why we use that uh, verse to be our uh, emblem, our uh, uh, slogan to say, uh, and thus we have created a moderate nation and using the term moderate, which is in Arabic, wasatiyah, to reflect the name of the movement in order to speak to the people in their language. Their language is a religion, not politics. If we would have used the word moderate, then uh, it has a western implication. And people would say, oh, this is a Western ideology or a Western phenomena, or uh, the West is trying to impose on us what they think. But I prefer to use a term from the Quran, from their culture, from their religion, from their tradition, in order for them to feel, uh, uh, to understand, to feel the association with it. And uh, that's why... We selected that word from the Quran, which means moderate, temperate, tolerant, just, justice, balance. And balance is a great contribution uh, by religion. And that's why uh, it is important.
0: And in uh, taking the concept even further, uh, when you describe uh, balance and moderation as being justice, which is the essence of a religious life, um, I think you make the point ever more strongly in, in terms of religion.
1: Yes, because so, uh, because um, initially, although it was a message to the Muslim community and uh, it, is, it was an Islamic message, uh, slogan or Islamic message, and it was directed to the Muslim community. But uh, it wasn't long before we realized that moderation is not only in Islam, but there is uh, calls for moderation in Christianity and in Judaism. Uh, also, that um, the uh, a call for mo- moderation is international uh, by philosophers and the, we, there are so many uh, philosophers, uh, such as the Greek philosophers Socrates, uh, Plato, and uh, Aristotle, who called for moderation. And Aristotle actually had a theory on moderation, uh, theory uh, of the mean. And so that's why, well, this is uh, part of our work.
0: Why why do you diagnose uh, violent extremism as a disease and its side effects as uh, empathy deficiency?
1: Basically, because I think that uh, uh, to be balanced uh, is the flow of things and to be in the middle. We are not born extremists. We later become extremists as a result of uh, events that will push us to become extremists, particularly political extremists. We could see things or we can experience things which uh, will push us into ideologies. And um, as a result, it is not the normal uh, things of being. And so I look at it, and I see when you are an extremist, uh, it uh, pushes you to do things which religion will not allow you to do, such as killing the other, uh, killing innocent people or torturing innocent people. And uh, so that's why, as a result, I don't see it uh, as a healthy stay, a status, but rather as an unhealthy state of mind. And this is where uh, it is a virus, and then it spreads by people spreading it. And so uh, part of the impact is that we lose empathy for the suffering of the other. We can tolerate people, but we do not hear their pain. We do not feel their pain. We do not hear their uh, voices of fleeing to um, Uh, to be left alone. And so here, in this aspect of the human being, which makes him become evil, uh, is I don't see it as healthy, and I see it as a disease, because when you do not have empathy for the suffering of the other, then you have a problem. And uh, only through curing that deficiency Then we can talk about uh, uh, we can talk about uh, being balanced, and and that's why we want to move away from one side, from being at the the periphery, at the extreme, to come to the middle.
0: And while we're using uh, a medical or health uh, metaphor. Let's talk a bit about anti-normalization. E- even though it's proved to be a self-defeating policy for the Palestinians, why does it continue to be supported? And what happens to those who oppose the policy or defy it? And and perhaps you'll begin your answer by e- defining and explaining what anti-normalization is.
1: Well, we have to understand the psyche of the Palestinian. And here, people ignore the elephant in the room, which is occupation. And so unless you cross the borders to go to Palestine, you will not understand what occupation means. And um, in this way, uh, people would like to react. They have, in the, in the, in the past, Hamas. Has reacted by suicide bombing, which the general people did not want. And then there was a call, uh, people wanted uh, to imitate the um, South African model of boycotting. And um, without understanding the um, uh, South African experience, and without learning about it, and without uh, Trying to see how does it fit within the Palestinian experience. Uh, so what they what they did is they just copied that model and tried to impose it uh, in Palestine. As a result, while the Palestinians did not want to resort to violence, they opted to seek another option, which is uh, boycott, and. Um, and so that's where uh, it, is because it has become much more popular than normalization. And um, unfortunately, uh, people do not understand that our experience, the Palestinian experience, and this, the environment within Israel-Palestine is totally different than the South African experience. While in South Africa, The boycott did work because it was uh, racism. uh, It was racism, and there were racist laws, and there were racist uh, uh, application of the laws and um, uh, in violence. Uh, It's not the same as our situation because since we, uh, since uh, with Oslo, we have uh, shifted. From the um, our uh, uh, instrument to achieve our goals, from uh, liberating Palestine to two-state solution, from armed struggle to diplomatic means, mm-hmm. and so this way we need to we need to uh, be able to use the method that will fit our struggle to end the occupation. And I strongly believe that um, without reaching out to the Israeli moderates, and to the Israeli public, and try to get the Israeli community to stand up uh, hand in hand with us, it will will not, uh, our struggle will not work. We cannot do it by force, and we cannot do it even by imposing on the other uh, through boycotts. The only thing is instead of building the walls which boycotts do, we need to build bridges which dialogue do and through dialogue. And uh, so that's why I strongly believe that the, um, uh, building, the bridge, uh, building bridges is much more effective than building walls. And boycotts uh, will make you not hear what the other side, uh, what the story or the narrative on the other side. It allows you, it does not allow you to learn about the culture of the other side in order to understand where does the other side come from and how to speak softly with them in order to be able to reach out to them to the majority of them, which is, Israel is a democratic uh, system, and the voter makes a difference. And that's why, if you can reach the voter to convince the voter that he has nothing to fear, that the Palestinians are not there to eliminate them or to throw them in the sea or to destroy what they have achieved so far, as a state, as a community, as a people, as a culture, then I think that they will vote for parties that will adopt a peace agenda. Look at the last uh, elections. Not a single party did adopt a peace agenda. And um, uh, so that's why we as Palestinians need to make the voice of moderation so the, so loud the, so that the other can hear it. And that's what we are doing. That's our message to the people, and that's our message to the world.
0: And you took a very dramatic step in that direction back in 2014 while you were a professor at Al-Quds University when you organized a group of 27 Palestinian students to visit Auschwitz, the infamous concentration camp in Poland. What was your thinking behind the project and and what did you hope to accomplish?
1: The idea was, how will someone feel, someone in conflict? How will they feel when they get acquainted to the suffering of the other? So how will an Israeli feel if he is better informed about the 1948 catastrophe or Nakba for the Palestinians, or how does a Palestinian feel getting to learn about the Holocaust, which is, in uh, in both terms, uh, means catastrophe? The Palestinians destra- describe their 1948 uh, war event to be a catastrophe the Jews do the same about the Holocaust. Now, it is very important not to compare and not to match and not to bargain even within the tragedies of each. And so my idea was that I should not look at the Holocaust uh, as a bargaining ship. If you teach about the Nakba, I will teach about the Holocaust. Or if you want me, uh, if you want peace, uh, I will uh, let us haggle, let us bargain. And to put these uh, very humanistic tragedies on the table. I wanted them outside the table. Uh, In the sense, we are ready as Palestinians Uh, to go and learn about the Holocaust without any bargaining, without you teaching about the Nakba, or you appreciating the suffering we had because of the Nakba. And here, what we are guided with is our moral compass. Our moral compass tells us it is the right thing to do. And that's where, when my students used to ask me, why should we learn about the Holocaust when the Israelis do not want, uh, make it illegal to learn about the Nakba or to commemorate the Nakba? Then my answer was simple because you will be doing the right thing. So our compass is a moral compass to do the right thing. And that's where uh that's what guided me to do what I did without thinking first what do I get in return from the other side? And without thinking, what is its implications within my community? Because I wanted it to be a, a call, a awakening call for my people to tell them that you should stop thinking in terms of the Holocaust, in terms that didn't happen or that it is... Uh, uh, it is one of the massacres within the Second World War and there were 20 million uh, Soviets who were killed and so many millions from other people. were No, and this is we have to show sub- uh, empathy for the victims of the Holocaust, whether Jews or non-Jews, irrespective of the fact that today we are in conflict. So we should show empathy for the suffering of the other, even if the other is our occupier, or even if the other is showing is showing no empathy for us, or even if the other is the reason why we suffer. And so that's where, without thinking in what is it, what's in it for me as a palestinian and what is it uh, but we should we should do it and um, i think what happened is um, it was a it was an important uh, message to the palestinians themselves because in the beginning they um, went into denial and then they went into violence uh, in reaction to what happened. But later, once things cooled down and those people who were uh, inciting, the voices were silenced by our voice, making it clear that why we went there. And it was education. The Quran teaches us to learn that the learned are not as equal to the uh, ignorant. And uh, one of the verses of the Quran, it says, and God advance me in knowledge. So we wanted to get out of the cave uh, of ignorance to the uh, light of knowledge. And that's the message that I have sent to the Palestinians, despite the fact that I was being accused of being collaborator, of being traitor, of being uh, uh, someone who surrenders and uh, submits and uh, that I want to please the other. I didn't let all these uh, demonization terms and um, uh, efforts really to bring me down, but I stood up and uh, uh, later my students stood up with me, most of them, and um, because they felt we did not do anything wrong, okay? We went there, we went there to learn. It doesn't mean that uh, by learning, we give up our rights, or we give up our hopes, or we give up our aspirations. That's not true, and that's why it was um, part of education. And for me, as an educator, it is part of my mission, to educate uh, my students, to educate my community, to educate my people. Because I learned also, and it was a a learning experience for me on the trip. Because from it, I learned the difference of how the Jews look at the Holocaust and how Palestinians look at the Holocaust. The Palestinians look at the Holocaust from the small picture, the picture of the barbed wire, the picture of the sentries, the picture of the walls surrounding the buildings. So they look at that and they see themselves in that. And so they see that as if there is a comparison between their uh, tragedy and the Holocaust and their present situation particularly that the Holocaust came to an end in 1945, while the Nakba for the Palestinians and the occupation is still ongoing. And so they see that, and they try uh, uh, not to see how the others view the Holocaust. So I wanted them to step in the shoes of the other, in the shoes of an Israeli, of a, uh, in the shoes of a Jew, and to look at the uh, Holocaust from the same eyes of the other, and to see what I call the big picture, which is a Jew looking at the Holocaust. He sees that the goal of the Holocaust while was the final solution, in the sense that it aimed to annihilate the Jews as a people, as a culture, as a civilization, to erase their history, to erase their presence. And so that's why no one was being spared, whether a child or a young man or an old woman or an old man. So they were all collected from their homes, and then thrown into the concentration camps. People used to think, oh, these were work camps. But then they have to realize that these were not work camps, these were death camps. And this is what they don't realize. And that's why a visit to Auschwitz by the Palestinians helped them see the difference between being a death camp and a work camp. And so because in a work camp you have a choice to, uh, to be left alone, you, have, you may be saved, while in a death camp there is no hope. And one of my students who, who was in jail asked me about that. She, she saw the sign on the gate which said, um, uh, uh, work sets you free. And she asked me, what does that mean? Work sets you free. So people, if they work, they go, they are freed. And I, I said to her, go check it out for yourself. What does that mean? So she went, and there was a bookstore in the Auschwitz uh, Museum. And she bought this uh, book about the Holocaust and about Auschwitz. And the first thing when she opened the book, the first thing that she saw was the book says uh, that those who the Jews who the Jews and non-Jews who were being brought in as prisoners were greeted by the commander of the uh, camp by saying to them all and as if they are quoting Dante, all you enter here, abandon hope, because the only way you will be out, you will be free, as through the chimneys of the crematorium. So she brought the book to me and showed me the, the uh, uh, slogan there. And so it helped her realize the difference between a war camp and a death camp. So unless you get really involved, it's very difficult to tell when you want to boycott the other, or when you want you don't want to read about him or about the other, and so that's why, as an educator, I found it an essential part of my message uh, to tell my students uh, this lesson that um, they have to learn about tragedies of other, without thinking that uh what is in what's in it for me? Because in learning, in education uh, you seek knowledge and in knowledge, you don't seek it to barter. you don't seek it because you have uh, a goal to make money or something. no you you seek it as in itself, as knowledge in order to broaden your scope of of mind, in order to help you in the way you live. And there is a huge difference between the life of the ignoramus and the life of the learned, of people with knowledge. And that's why all religion did ask people to seek knowledge and to learn and to, in order that they can be uh, uh, facing the troubles without using violence, going back to the
0: you, you paid a big price for that trip. Uh, you had experienced quite a, an intense, even violent reaction, both from official and ordinary Palestinians. Uh, tell us what happened to you and your family when you came back from this well-intentioned and seemingly benign and important educational trip.
1: Uh, before the trip, I was uh, told by one of my students that I should cancel the trip. It was a week before the trip. And um, he said that uh, he has a message for me uh, that I should cancel the trip. Otherwise, when I come back, there might be problems for me. So I knew before that there will be uh, trouble, but I... To be honest, I never imagined that to be uh, to uh, to spread uh, the way it did. Uh, also, uh, I received an email from the president of the university telling me I heard rumors that you are taking your students to Auschwitz, and if that rumor is true, then please tell them tell let the students know that this activity is not part of the university activity, and it is part of your Wasatiya organization activity. And so I wrote him back that uh, uh, this is uh, what I have done, initially, that the students are very much aware that this is an educational trip, it's not a political trip. At the same time, it is done uh, by my organization, Wasatiya and it's not an official activity by the university. However, when we when we went there it was things were going well and then uh, the, the the day before we came back, Haaretz wrote an article about the trip. However, when the article was translated to Arabic in the new in the uh, Palestinian newspaper. The translation was uh, shifted in the sense that while the Haris article said that the sponsors of the trip were uh, German universities, the article, the translation said in Arabic, it was uh, Zionist, It was Israeli universities, and when the um, Harris said that the funding was by the German Research Institute. The um, Arabic translation was the funding was by Zionist organizations. At the same time, while this Haaretz article said that there was reciprocity, that Israeli students were taken to to the um, uh, were taken to the uh, Palestinian refugee. Yeah, refugee camp refugee uh, it ignored camp. this right. this was not mentioned in the uh, uh, Palestinian article news article so here when they put it online there was a huge amount of outburst on the uh, uh, on the internet and uh, on the social networks uh, against without anybody trained to understand our point of view, they were just you know, maybe and the hundreds of thousands of messages there that uh, were very anti, very uh, attacking, very... And so it took us for a while. What made things worse is that the university, Al-Quds University, issued a statement saying that they have nothing to do with this uh, educational tour, instead of saying that this is part of education, trying to defend the trip, but they blamed it on me. And um, then the student unions issued a statement that they distributed on campus and on their websites, saying that I'm a traitor, accusing me of being a traitor because of doing Uh, this trip or taking it. So within campus and then it was not only uh, that, but the syndicate of of the faculty and workers issued a statement uh, saying that they are expelling me uh, from the syndicate because of what I did. Although I was not a member and uh, so there were a lot of incitement that uh, followed uh, in the aftermath of the trip which uh, made people uh, not think logically and not think rationally but rather to seek violence and so they they had demonstrations on campus and uh, came to my office uh, at the american studies they trashed it and then I was the head of the libraries at the university, so they went there and delivered uh, a note to my secretary, who said that if I come, if I will, if they will catch me on campus, that they will kill me, and um, they they um, also uh, threatened uh, in my family, and uh, so I submitted my resignation uh, because of that uh, academic environment anti academic environment so the president calls me in and in a meeting and he asks me why did you submit your resignation yeah i said because of the environment within the campus and he said we can when you come he said, I have received many messages from, uh, from outside the university that uh, threatens your life. So what we can do for you is that when you are on campus, we can provide for you security. If you call us before you come, then we will provide the security at the gate. And once you leave the gate, you are on your own. I said, I do not want your security. I want you to issue a statement that what I did was not wrong and that's part of the message of the university is education. And what I did is part of education and part of the mission of the university. He said, sorry, we cannot do that. And so uh, he gave me till a week to withdraw my, uh, my resignation. After a week, he sent me a letter saying we have accepted your resignation, and you are not anymore uh, part an employee of the university. Later, when I was asked about what happened, and I said that um, uh, I'm not afraid, and I can, and I will, if you ha- if I will have the opportunity, I will do it again. Uh, then they came at 11 at night and and torched my car. Uh, So actually, torching my car, it wasn't just they came and put uh, gasoline on it and put it on fire. But rather, it was that they came uh, a few days before and uh, spilled chemicals, wax, and others within the motor and uh, that's why when it uh, it was torched it took the uh, fire brigade more than 3 hours 4 hours to put it off and uh, it affected two cars in front and it burned all the side of the wall uh, of the uh, of our house and there was also a big uh, lemon tree there that was uh, burnt Uh, And the message was clear that uh, you have to uh, forget about this issue. Otherwise, your life is in danger. And I used to receive calls, and my brothers used to receive calls, where people used to threaten our lives, to threaten our children and our uh, relatives. But unfortunately... That was uh, the situation.
0: Well, I'm glad you and your family are okay. Thank you. One of the writers of a chapter in your book, uh, Hussein Ibish, is a columnist for the National, an English-language newspaper in Abu Dhabi. And he takes the problem you just described so well onto an even bigger uh, landscape beyond the Palestinian territories. Um, he, uh, says that the political dividing lines in the Arab world in general are between the knowledge constituency versus the ignorance lobby. And he goes on to write, there's a great insularity in the Arab world. We don't want to think about other people in the broader world. It is extremely damaging. Do you think he has a point?
1: Hussein Ibish is a very enlightened scholar and uh, I have uh, much respect for him. I, th- I strongly support his argument. I think that it is, Plato described it in his allegory of the cave, that uh, when people are imprisoned in a cave where they um, live all their lives chained to the ground and looking in front of them where a fire behind them reflects uh, people walking around and so the people chained will only see the reflections of the reality and uh, so uh, I believe this is our situation in the Arab world now if you come Plato argues if you come unchain one of those prisoners and try to walk him out and let him see the fire and uh, the people walking in reality and then to see the perceptions and the images on the wall, then he will see the reality and he will be able uh, to have knowledge. You can walk him outside the cave and he can see the water, the sun, the trees, the rivers, in reality. And uh, so awakened by all that knowledge. Now, if you take him back to the people, then the people find it hard to believe him, and they will accuse him of him being insane, or him being ignorant, or him being deluded. So unfortunately, uh, our educational system in the Arab world is not based on creating a young generation that thinks, that is knowledgeable, that is open-minded. But rather, it is a closed-minded system where people are, or the young generation is being... Uh, is being taught just the lessons of what the old generation has learned and rather than to learn to have their uh, minds awakened by the new knowledge that they should have they are kept uh, in a closed brain the uh, closed minded uh, and so apart. Uh, part of of our struggle within the educational system is to break that cycle to have. And this is exactly what happened why the Arab Spring started because in the Arab Spring, the Arab educational system were teaching the young generation how to to be employees within the public sector. That's all not to have them have their own private and private business uh, even within the new technologies to use the new technologies to be to work through home you don't need to have even an office in the streets to have a tourist agency you can do it you can sell look at amazon look at all these uh, uh, and social these networks that started using. They don't teach them that. They teach them that. They teach them the traditional uh, lessons that they themselves learn so that they will become public servants. Now, the uh, the, uh, the public servant uh, apparatus is filled. And so these people come and there are no jobs for them. So eventually, someone as educated as Buazizi set himself on fire because he felt, so, uh, uh, without any hope and so desperate, and so that's why. And it started and His message went wild. Why, and it was a spark because so many people were like him. And Ibu Azizi, Abu Azizi was, not, was not one man, he spoke for a generation, and that's why the Arab Spring started. Unfortunately, because there were no bases for democracy, then what happened is that there was autocracy again and there was chaos. And that's half of uh, the Arab world now is in chaos or the autocracy took over again because there was no basis for democracy. There was no pillars of democracy. There and that's why it is important for us to teach to have a democratic culture and to have a moderate culture. So in Wasatiya, we see it as a cycle. We see that Wasatiya culture ushers in reconciliation, and reconciliation ushers in uh, conflict resolution and negotiations in goodwill and conflict resolution and conflict resolution will usher uh, democracy in a true sense will usher prosperity will usher development and this is where uh, and when we are talking about a solution we are talking a solution that will take uh, that will take care of both aspirations of the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. That's why it is so important, and that's what's missing in Trump's uh, deal of the century, what he calls deal of the century, as if it's a business deal. He thinks only in terms of it as a business. and uh, uh, And so that's why he is focusing on the economy. But it's not about the economy because you have to satisfy the individual individual's identity. You have to satisfy his um, human uh, character, and that's why in Palestine and in our work we want the Palestinian to look at the Israeli and not to see an occupier and not to see a soldier uh, or uh, uh, someone who a guard at, at the prison, but rather to look at him and see a human being. The same thing for an Israeli, to look at the Palestinian, and not to look at him as if he doesn't exist or he, he he's not there, he's not human, but rather to de- to see the human dimension, his humanity. And that's why if we look at each other and we see the humanity in each other, then definitely we can be able to achieve peace without any problem, without any violence, without boycotts, without using any coercive measures, but rather through willingness to throw down the weapon and to say, you are welcome, you are my neighbor, and you are welcome to live with me or to live next to me and here, come into my house, let us share lunch, let us have coffee together. And uh, in this way we can be able uh, to leave behind all the enmity, all the hatred, all the past. And rather than to repeat, keep repeating the past, by thinking of the past and living the past, we have to leave the past behind, in order to move to the future. and
0: in your, in your writings, you use the image of big dreams versus small hopes. Yes. Tell us what you mean by that image.
1: Actually, that image started from uh, back in the late 1990s. I was asked to uh, be a facilitator for a meeting between Palestinian religious leaders and 15 Palestinian religious leaders and, uh, and religious educators and 15 Israel, uh, Jewish educators. And uh, we, the meeting was in Antalya. And when the meeting started, the first session, both of them were sitting each on his side of the table and accusing the other that the other is an intruder. You do not belong here. This land is ours. The Palestinian will say, this land is ours. Our grandparents left it for us. The um, Jew will say, this land for, is for us. God gave us this land. And the Palestinian would, would respond, God is not a real estate agent. And God does not care about land. God cares about people. And both of them were not uh, were not listening to each other, were not putting themselves in the place of the other. And uh, I was looking at them and feeling very desperate uh, because I felt that the, this uh, exercise was useless. And suddenly... Spark on me, I remember the quote by Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, in which he he wonders, what is more important, a big dream or a small hope? So I thought to cool things down, to throw that on the table. I said, what is more important, a big dream or a small hope? So, and they were confused both both sides, they were confused saying, what is big dream, what's small, what do you mean? What does this have to do with the important things we are talking about? Are you kidding us, or are you joking, or what? A, what is that? So my point was, after I said, what is more important to you, a big dream or a small? And so after a while, I started to explain when they got tired, I said, they asked me, what is the big dream? What is this moral? So I said, the big dream is for a Palestinian to wake up one morning and there are no Jews around. There is no Israel. There is no uh, Israelis, everybody. And there is only Muslims and only the kingdom of Palestine or the uh, Republic of Palestine and Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. Now, what is the big dream for the Israeli? The big dream for the Israeli is to wake up one morning and there are no Palestinians. They are all outside. And um, uh, Jerusalem is the capital and then they can build their temple without anybody objecting to it. Now, these are big dreams but they are not the realities on the ground. What is the small hope? The small hope is for both communities, both people to wake up one morning and they are living next to each other, living in peace, uh, whether as one state, whether as two states, three states, it doesn't make a difference. It is not the two state solution or the three state solution or the one state solution, but the focus is on the solution, rather the number of states. And so uh, because the aspiration of each that they want a homeland, then I see in the beginning to have a two-state solution. And later maybe it can be uh, through a kind of federation or kind of cooperation together can become more like a one-state. And then, after being having a sequence of trust and goodwill, so I thought this is the big dream and the small hope. Now the question is, what, what, what would you favor, the big dream or the small hope? Now the implication of the big dream is to annihilate the other, is to have a holocaust for the other. Now, do you want to do that? This is immoral, you have to realize, and um, inhuman. Do you want to be immoral, human and and actually uh, cause the elimination of the other by killing them? Because that's the only way you can get rid of them. You have millions of people living next to each other and in the lab of each other, so you cannot just have them uh, be there and not there. So this is the solution. Do you want to use the solution? Is this, are you for the big dream? And everybody said no. And then I said, are you for the small hope? And they, everybody said yes. So whenever one would say you do not belong, then we will say, then are you for the big dream? And then he said, well, no, 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 I'm for the small hope. And so it started like that. That's how it sparked. And then we, uh, uh, it became like a model for conflict. And uh, I developed the idea into a model and uh, tried to spread it around. I went to universities, I went to different parts of the world and to the United States with the idea and uh, developed it into a PowerPoint and trying to see, trying even I visited Armenia, Georgia and Azerbaijan. And when I discussed with them the concept of the big dream small hope, I realized that many people who are in conflict do have this big dream. And for the Azerbaijani were telling us were telling me that the um, uh, Azerbaijan included Armenia and included Georgia, included all the other countries around it. Uh, so I said, then you are talking about the big dream, not the small. And uh, what do you want? You want to invade them? And then when I went to Armenia, they showed me a big map in which they said that Armenia came at a time when it included Azerbaijan and it included Syria, it included this. And I said, you are also talking about the big dream. Now I have to let go of that big dream and to try to live the small hope where you cooperate with them. And it's not important, the borders, because the human border is uh, without borders. And uh, that's why you should stop thinking in terms of the big dream, of trying to uh, go back to the past and say, this is our land, but rather to try to coexist with the other. And in this way, that's the only way you can have peace, whether peace within yourself or peace within your surrounding, with your people, or with your enemy.
0: Well, big dreams, small hope is a very wise slogan to keep in mind in many situations. And that's a good point for us to notice that you've been very generous with your time. Uh, so before I let you go, please tell us what you're working on now. I I
1: strongly believe that uh, we need to have educators who are leaders within the community who are specialized in reconciliation, specialized in conflict resolution, specialized in healing and empathy. That's why I'm working on a PhD program. I started working on a Peace University but it didn't work, and now I'm starting to work on a a PhD program uh, for uh, uh, people to study reconciliation because I have studied the curriculum of the Arab universities and the universities in the region, and I found that there isn't one single university in the Arab world that teaches reconciliation or that there are centers of reconciliation, or that there are experts in reconciliation. That's why I uh, am working on this PhD program in which, uh, uh, luckily for me, the University, Europa University, the European University in Flensburg had accepted to host that PhD program into what they called the European Wasatiya uh, Graduate School for uh, Peace and uh, Conflict Resolution. And so what I'm hoping is to have Palestinians, Israelis, Euro- uh, Morocco, or um, people from different societies, even particularly people in countries of conflict, or in countries which saw conflict, uh, to come and study reconciliation by trying to um, learn about the uh, suffering of different people in different times. And that's why I strongly support this concept. We are trying to raise funds for it in order that we can start that program with a big number of students and um, to try to see that to set up we have worked on the courses and we it is it is not a, a program where you need to to stay at the university but rather it's a program where you can uh, register at the university have your advisor and then go back live your life and then but to go and uh, uh, work in the field, to do your dissertation from the field, to go to South Africa, to go to Rwanda, to go to Cambodia, to go to Ireland, and to see how the um, reconciliation uh, did take place there, and or how healing is taking place. And uh, in this way to have these and come back and, Bring these not only to Palestine or Israel, but rather also to the Arab world, to the universities in the Arab world that will want to start to have healing, whether within itself, within this community itself, or between between the country and Israel or the country and whatever whichever country they are fighting against. so basically. Uh, I feel strongly for, uh, and for uh, this program and I would hope that it will be supported by different universities, by uh, different uh, funders, by donors, by uh, governments in order really to have to spread the message of uh, love, reconciliation, Peace, empathy, and um, coexistence, dialogue, in order that we can uh, assure our children a better future than our present times.
0: Well, that sounds like a very important and uh, optimistic uh, project, and I. That wish-
1: it is, it is actually, yeah, it is um, yeah, from the concept of they planted, we ate, we plant so that, we plant so that our children will eat. So it is the same concept in the Talmud and in others where we would like to plant the seeds of peace so that our children can live in peace.
0: Well, amen to that. I wanna wish you great success with the project. And thank you very much for being on the show today.
1: And thank you for inviting me to be on the show.
0: You're very welcome. And thanks as well to Bela Pasikoff, our researcher.